Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. I do want to say again just how much I, I, I love our kids. Like, I love the kids in our church. Um, one of my favorite memories uh, was I was doing a member interview downstairs, and like t- in the member interview, like 10 children came by, either sat in my lap, gave me a drawing, said something. Like, Jesus said, let the children come to him. And I want to be a church that believes that, that we, we, all of us are playing a part in discipling our kids. And so that happens multiple ways. It happens through just encouraging parents. It happens in serving in classes. It happens in just being friendly. It happens in, in you know, picking them up when they fall, uh, reminding my kids not to be too teenager-y, you know, like uh, those are all good things uh, that we do. We all join in on that. And so to, to echo those prayers and those thoughts, also just want to say something. We have several educators in our church uh, who are teachers and counselors, and like we're praying for you guys as well as you go right back into the thick of teaching as Christians in the school system. And so we're praying for you guys as well. Um, now, next week, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Acts, a very short series. We're not going through the whole thing. We're going to be looking at the type of church that we want to be, the type of church that we are, some distinctives of that. Uh, but, and so really just to kind of give us this vision. So last week and this week are sort of like bonus content to that sermon series. So this is, the last two weeks have been, last week and this week are really about the type of church we want to be as well. And uh, when was the last time any of you bought a DVD? Anybody buy a DVD recently? A Blu-ray? Anybody? No? We all stream everything now. It's on your phone, it's on your TV, it's on your PlayStation or whatever. Um, None of us do that, but they still do sell Blu-rays and DVDs. Um, And the way that they try to get you to buy them now is through adding bonus content to that DVD. There's a director's cut. Uh, there are interviews with the actors that no one in the history of the world has ever watched. Um, there's all sorts of deleted scenes that get added. So this is sort of like bonus content uh, to that sermon series. And so last week, uh, we looked at living as exiles for the good of our city. Uh, that as Christians, we, this is not our home. Boss is not our ultimate home, but our home is with God himself. And so we're going to feel a little uncomfortable in the world. We're going to feel uneasy in the world, but that God has equipped us as his people who are the first Peter calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It describes us as a people who are God's own possessions set aside to make him known and to be a blessing to other people. And we do this through remembering this new identity in Christ. And it's vital for us as the church to remember this new identity because we've been called together in a strange place as a new people and as a family. There are many people moving to Boston in the coming weeks who are looking for home. They're looking for friendship. They're looking for community. And I believe that City on a Hill can be that for people in our neighborhood. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the idea of greatness. What does it mean to be great? What would it mean for us to be great as Christians or great as a church? And typically, when we think of something being great, we think of sports or we think of, of music or we think of art. And the, the eternal argument online is, who is better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? I have an opinion, and we're not going to get into it right now. Um, but it's probably pretty subjective. It's, who did you watch growing up? Did you watch Michael Jordan growing up or did you watch LeBron James growing up? 
It's fairly subjective. We all know Tom Brady is the best football player of all time, no doubts. He will always be a Patriot. We're just going to ignore those Buccaneer years. We're going to count that one Buccaneer Super Bowl as a Patriot Super Bowl because it was Tom Brady. Um, When it comes to hip-hop, you probably have your person. It could be Kanye. It could be Kendrick. It could be whoever. When it comes to art, we all have our differing opinions of what great art is, and it feels like greatness is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And the way we tend to think of something being great is sort of our collective opinion. It's like if you're determining what color something is. Some people are colorblind. Others just aren't very good at it. I was talking to my kids yesterday, and one swore that this necklace was green. And we're all like, no, it's, it's yellow. That's typically how we think of greatness. If enough people come together and say that this is worthy, if this is a, a good way to live, then that's what a great life looks like. And the reason we do this is because we're all looking to be great. We're all looking for something, some sort of way to define what a good life is. It it could be whether we're the best at our job, or it could be whether we're a good parent. It could be um, where we're finding uh, love at. It could be whether we care for the right uh, causes or care for the environment or the poor. And we boil it down, and we think that greatness really equals living a good life. So how do we determine how to live a good life? Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 about what a great life looks like. It says in verse 43, halfway through, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, why does Jesus get to tell us what a great life looks like? Uh, just the other day, I was, I was watching this clip from BBC Music, and they decided to pull a prank on a bunch of Adele fans and these people who sang Adele covers. Um, and, and Adele, the actual Adele, dresses up as a nanny named Jenny. And she has, this, she has this real soft-spoken voice, and she seems real nervous backstage, and they're discussing what Adele would think of this, and she's sitting there and, and, and dressed up going, yeah, I'm not real sure what she'd think. And uh, everyone had to cover the song, Make You Feel My Love, and they're doing a pretty good job at it. And then Jenny walks up to the stage and starts singing, and immediately everybody in the room says, oh, wait a minute, she's not singing like Adele, that is Adele. They realize that she was Adele. Jesus isn't just great, he is greatness. He doesn't just give us a definition of greatness, he is the definition of greatness because he is God, he is God the Son. And Psalm 66.3 tells us, it says, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Psalm 150 verse two, praise him for his mighty deeds, Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So if we're going to determine what a great life is, we need to look to greatness itself. And if service and humbling ourselves, becoming a servant to all is the way to greatness, then you and I have to discover what it means to serve other people. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what serving requires, and the first idea we're going to explore is that serving requires a right heart. Serving requires a right heart. Verse 35, it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. And so James and John, they they approached Jesus, they sort of cornered Jesus. Um, If you look back a couple of verses, Jesus has just delivered some of the most devastating news possible. They somehow haven't heard it. He's given them some very heavy news about his future. 
But if you know anything about James and John, they had a very fun nickname called the Sons of Thunder. As you can imagine, the Sons of Thunder were not exactly subtle people. They weren't people who, uh, you know, were, were very, had a lot of tact. Uh, they were brave men. They were bold men. They were rough around the edges. Uh, they didn't lack courage or confidence or conviction. And so they're willing to walk up to Jesus and make this very bold ask. They say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That is a bold request. I want you to do anything I ask you. I want you to say yes before I even give you the question. Do you have that friend who always asks the question, hey, can you do me a favor? Anybody have that friend? Are you that friend? Don't have to raise your hand on that. Uh, can you do me a favor? And they don't want to tell you what it is because they're afraid you might say no. And I usually just say, well, it depends on what you're about to ask me. This is a pretty audacious thing. I mean, if someone might be asking you to help them walk up to a fifth floor walk up and help them move in, which is a plug for the big move. Please come help with that. What an audacious ask. Jesus, I want you to give me anything that I ask of you. You have to say yes. And Jesus is probably thinking this should be pretty good. So verse 36, we see the patience of Jesus, but also his ability to draw the heart of people out. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And we see here in their question, their ask, there's some pretty selective hearing here because three times Jesus has said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to a cross. I'm not going to live. I'm not going to be the kind of king that you think I am. And I understand this not feeling heard or understood because I can tell you how many times I've, I've preached something and had someone come up to me and it's like, it went in one ear and out the other. I remember I was preaching a sermon one time and I was laying it on just hard about how like we can't save ourselves and we, we can do nothing to add to our salvation and it's all about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And it's not about your morals or your good efforts. And I remember asking this person, I said, hey, tell me what was your takeaway from the sermon? And she just said, you know, I just really felt so encouraged that I can, I can work hard and please God. And I'm like, no, like you're missing. This is what's happening to Jesus. So if it happens to Jesus, it makes me feel a little bit better. It goes in one ear and out the other. They heard what they wanted to hear. They had this vision of Jesus as a victorious king, but yet he came to be a suffering servant. And the question they ask is not the question you ask a suffering servant. It's the type of question you ask a victorious king. They're asking for a place of prominence beside him. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus, when you make it, don't forget the little people. Jesus, when you're sitting on your throne above all things, we want to be right there beside you. Now, this sounds worshipful. It almost sounds like this is what you'd want your disciples to do, that they're going to be there with you to the very end. What we see is that self-interest can often hide itself looking like worship and discipleship. We can love God as a means to an end. We can say, God, I'll follow you, but behind it, we're saying, God, I'll follow you if you'll bless me. God, I'll follow you if you give me a place of importance. God, I'll follow you if you give me the desires of my heart. And we can even do this in church, man. You can sacrifice every single week. You can come do set up twice on a Sunday. We're not even meeting. You're doing set up again. You'll watch kids every single week. You can serve in the worship band. You can get up here and preach and do it as a way to hide your own self 
interest. And we need to see how wrong their approach is because they say this and they don't pull Jesus away. They pull him away like with an earshot of the other disciples. Now, if you know anything about the gospel story, who's missing from this group? Who are the three who are always together? It was James and John and Peter. Peter is nowhere to be found. Peter was there with them at the transfiguration where Jesus showed his glory to them on the mountaintop. It was Peter and James and John. They were his inner circle. And here James and John pull aside to get something from Jesus. They have cut Jesus out of the big three. It's like saying, hey, Marcus Smart, I hope you enjoy Memphis. For you basketball fans, we're all, you know, sad about that. In verse 41, they're pretty hot about this. They say, and, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. How dare you get there before we could? How dare you ask Jesus before we could ask for the same spot? What about us? And Jesus uses this moment as a way to show you the type of heart that's going to be required to serve other people. Verse 42, he calls them all together and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, The way that the Gentiles use leadership, the way that they use power is a way to hold it over other people. It's bragging rights. This is the way that the world defines greatness. Greatness is a status. Greatness is a place above others. It's whether you have junior or senior in front of your title. It's your place on the org chart at work. It's how popular you are at school. It's where you fall on the salary schedule. And so we don't see this as a way to serve other people. We see this as a way to step over other people. We see power as a way to use other people. We see it as something that can only be gotten by our ambition and our hard work. But then Jesus says at the beginning of verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Christians use power and influence differently than the world. Not to seek gain, not to seek approval, not to seek status, but as a means to serve and bless other people. And the way that God defines greatness looks nothing like the world. Alistair Begg says that worldly ideas of status and privilege, Jesus is teaching, have no place in the alternative society which is the kingdom of God. We seek opportunity to serve. He's saying if you're looking out primarily for yourself, if you're looking primarily for what you're going to get, what you can achieve, what you can be fulfilled by, you'll never serve other people because you'll never have the margin, you'll never have the time, you'll never have the headspace. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you need to have perfect motives before you serve anybody because you'll always be waiting if you're waiting for perfect motives. But we can look at the heart and we can look at the motives of our heart. The way that we're living, a few questions. Number one, is it about me or is it about other people? Is it about me or is it about others? Secondly, is the way I'm living about God's glory or is it about my achievements? And then thirdly, is the way I'm living to look good before others or to honor God? It's the motives of the heart. So serving requires a right heart. Secondly, serving requires a certain humility. Jesus, in the next, his next words, which we've already read, flipped the whole idea of greatness on its head. 
Verse 43 again, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I know I've read that already, but we can't read those words enough because we think they're a mistake. Jesus, surely you didn't mean these things that the last shall be first, that the one who serves will actually be considered great in your kingdom. The world defines greatness by power. The Bible defines greatness by humility. James Edwards says that at no place did the ethics of the kingdom clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. Who did Jesus say will inherit the earth? The humble. And it's going to be those who learn to serve who will be considered great in the kingdom. Augustine, the great fourth century bishop, said that the first, second, and third ideas of religion are all humility. Following Jesus is about humility. Now, you may object to this. You may be hearing this, and maybe you're not yet a Christian. You're, you're wrestling with these ideas, and you're like, you know, these Christians have no idea what they're talking about. They have, you have no idea what it means to succeed in life. Like, this idea of humbling yourself and never trying to get ahead, it doesn't work in real life. You've never worked in my office place. You've never gone to my school. And it seems like it's just telling us to lack confidence and be timid and, and have no ambition to achieve anything. We just kind of, we're just doormats for everybody else. But if we understand humility from a biblical standpoint, that couldn't be further from the truth. Humility isn't a call to navel-gazing. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase where you're just kind of always looking down. It's like you're looking at your belly button, which it's a weird, weird phrase, I know. It's just you're looking down on yourself all the time. Humility isn't a call to navel-gazing but it's a call to look away from yourself. Humility looks away from yourself and it looks to Jesus. Humility is is looking away from yourself where pride is only looking at yourself. And so a prideful person is someone who's only looking after their own interests, they're only looking after their own agenda, their own achievement. But do you wanna know what navel gazing really is? It's wounded pride. It's just looking at yourself and all the ways that you failed living up to your own standards. So a truly humble person is a free person, a person who's joyful, a person who understands that all the pressure is off. And what humility does is it gives you the only immovable confidence that you could possibly have because it's not in yourself. It's in Jesus alone. And this is why the promises of Scripture are such good news where it says that if God is for us, who could be against us? He who began a good work in you didn't just hand it off to you to finish. He completes that good work. Humility doesn't lead to you being timid and not working hard. It actually means you work harder because work isn't about your ego. It's about pleasing God. Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, I work harder than everybody else because I'm already approved. And so to position yourself below others, to serve them, to consider their needs and not just your own, you're going to have to be a humble person, and that humbleness is going to come through Jesus. And then serving becomes longing for the good of another person above your own needs. Even the idea of serving someone else is the picture of lifting them up. And if I were to try to lift you up off the floor, it's a lot harder for me to do that than for me to get down and use my legs and try to pick you up. And so serving others is love and action. And so humility is only, the only true way to love others because it requires that we get low. The greatest example 
I have ever seen of love is my grand, was my grandfather. My grandfather passed away almost four years ago. Um, and, and he was the picture of love and gentleness and humility, a very quiet man, a very simple man. Um, and I remember the picture of this that just sticks in my mind of my grandfather was we were hanging out in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Um, that's an entire experience and a whole other sermon illustration for another day, what Gatlinburg, Tennessee is. We're walking around there uh, during uh, Thanksgiving, and I, my grandmother had a bad back for like our entire lives. And I just remember watching my grandfather stoop down in 30-degree weather and tie my grandmother's shoe. Something so simple. He stooped down and he tied her shoe. Love stoops down. Love gets low. It humbles itself for another person. This is the way to greatness. The way up is down. So how do you and I gain the heart that's required for serving, but also the humility that's required for serving? Thirdly and lastly, serving requires a better hope. I want us to go back to verse 38. We didn't skip it. We're coming back to it. In verse 38, Jesus asks a very profound question. He says this, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Right before this, he says, you don't know what you've asked. Are are you sure that you can do this? Are, Are you able to do what I'm about to go do? And so what's being described here by the cup and by the baptism is the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin. Jesus is saying, you want a place in my kingdom? You want a place at my right or my left? This is what it's going to take. Can you do it? Can you bear it? Can you drink the cup? What, what qualified James and John to be with Jesus in God's presence? And really the question behind the question is, are you holy enough to stand before God? And the simple answer is no. James and John, no matter how good they are, no matter how much many good things they do, no matter how much they try to outweigh the bad, they could never be good enough to fulfill the demands of God's judgment. And none of us can. Because you and I are sinners who've sinned against a good, holy, and eternal God and sin deserves punishment and it deserves judgment. Now, we don't like ideas of God's judgment. We don't like ideas of God's wrath. They're like, that sounds so Old Testament. Isn't Jesus all about love? But some of the harshest words in the Bible about judgment come from Jesus, not from the Old Testament. But also some of the most comforting words of love come from the Old Testament God. They're the same God. You cannot divorce the judgment of God from the love of God. You cannot divorce the wrath of God from the mercy of God. They work together according to the perfect counsel of his will. God cannot be loving if he's not wrathful. Do you really want a God who doesn't make right what's wrong? Do you you really want a God who doesn't have an ultimate answer for evil and injustice? But this is actually the way that God shows his love. Would it be loving for a father to allow his child to just be taken by a kidnapper and do nothing to address the one who tried to take the child? A loving father would do whatever it took to to disable that man, and, and even to the point of death, to rescue his child. 
evil must be dealt with. And God is not just unless he deals with sin fully and eternally, an offense against an eternal God of supreme worth. And generally, we're okay with that. We, we value justice. We want God to deal with evil. We want him to deal with injustice. We want him to deal with sin until it gets to us. I want to pass. I want God to grade me on a curve. I've been pretty good. I want to be able to, to, to show my good efforts before God, but can you drink the cup? Can you do enough to outwork your sin? Man, do we try. Look at verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. The sons of thunder coming in again. We are able. In our moments when we're feeling pretty good, we try moralism. We try to throw ourselves into religion. We try to go to church a lot. We try to keep all the rules. We serve. We do all of these things to prove ourselves before God, not believing we're perfectly loved by God through Jesus. We can be given to pragmatism. Maybe you're not religious, but you've got your own set of morals or rules defined by a political party or an activism group or an online forum, and this is the rules you're going to live by. We, we try relativism that I'm going to compare myself to other people and I'm better than most. But judgment and punishment for sin is not like doing community service for 300 years. It's eternal punishment because our God is an eternal God. Can you drink the cup? Do you really want to put all of your chips down on a losing number? Do you really want to put all of your hope in your ability to be a good person? Do you really want to put all of your hope in comparing yourself to other people? We are in bondage to sin, which is both the offenses we commit against God and our own attempts to be good on our own. We need a better hope. And here it is in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate servant. No one has ever served like Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How did Jesus serve us? It means he drank the cup. He drank down the cup of God's judgment. He bore the baptism of of God's wrath that was due to you and I. He took what you deserve so that you could have only what he deserves, which is life with God. And what he does in this is he frees you from the bondage of sin to give his life as a ransom for many, to free you from sin. Your only hope is that Jesus in his great love for you served you. That he stooped low, that he became a servant, that he emptied himself, now, notice what he says at the end of verse 39. Jesus is serving us, allows us to serve. He says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They will drink the cup. What does that mean? James and John, they both end up suffering in different ways for the sake of Jesus, but not to the point of proving themselves or for a position, not to pay for their own sins, but to bring glory to Jesus. They experience some of the brokenness of the world, but not to the point of being crushed. Jesus took the big cup as our servant so that we could take the little cup and serve people like he has served us. You serve Jesus 
You serve his church. You humble yourself for his glory. You can face hardship and it's not going to crush you. And I think what's fascinating to me is verse 40. It's very, this, is a ver- this is a verse that has just confounded uh, people who, who are trying to translate the Bible and, and commentary writers. It says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It's not up to Jesus who's on the left and the right, but what I find was fascinating is that the, the only place in the Bible where two people are portrayed as being at the left and the right of Jesus are on the cross. And one of them pleads for mercy at the very end after living a life that was not for the glory of God and throwing himself on the mercy of God. The only way that you can truly humble yourself enough to serve and please God is to hope in Jesus who ultimately humbled himself for you. The only way you can face life's difficulties is trusting that Jesus has faced the worst on your behalf. And so Jesus equips us to serve. So as we close this morning, I just want to give you three practical ways that you can serve. Number one is to serve each other. To serve each other humbly. I just want to encourage you this week, find one way to bless one person in this congregation. That can be something as simple as a text message. It can be watching somebody's kids. It could be buying somebody a cup of coffee, having them over for a meal. If everybody were to do something, we'd feel really loved and blessed this week. Secondly, is to serve on a Sunday. This is an easy place to start. Uh, I was talking to Matt. I was like, how many people does it take to to make a Sunday happen? Um, Somewhere between like 18 and 22. And that's people filling multiple roles right now. And you're looking around the room going, there's not, not... maybe like double that here. Um, yeah, we need people to serve. Like we, we need people to step in and serve. And the more people serve, the lighter the load becomes. And so um, just really our, three, our two biggest areas right now are set up and kids. People are willing to come set up and tear down. We need people who are willing to do that. But also like we talked about, about promotion Sunday, a really tangible way would be able to go back there and hold a baby. One day he's going to grow up into a sixth grader who's going into our youth group. Love and serve our kids. After the service, there are going to be some sign-ups in the back at our connect table. Go back there. If you're not on a team, sign up for something. The third way is to serve our city. There's lots of ways that we serve the city, but two big partnerships for us are English High School. We work with their ESL program and just support that. And then also the High Park Department for Children and Families, where we support foster care families. We have some events for those coming up. Again, just put your name down in the back and sign up for that. Let's, let's start serving and let Jesus change our hearts as we serve, believing that he has served us most fully through the cross. Let's pray. Let's pray.